0: Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're actually going to have two scripture readings this morning. Uh, The first is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 6 through 9. And then we will also be turning over to Philippians uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through uh, 26. And our focus this morning, as Jeff said earlier, is the... The benefits of our salvation at death. For the past couple of months, we have been uh, studying the benefits of our salvation that we receive in this life. And we uh, began with the three primary benefits that we experience in this life. The, The benefits of justification, of adoption, and of sanctification. And then we spent time looking at a, a series of secondary benefits that uh, flow out of these three primary benefits. They were assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase in grace, and then finally last week, uh, the perseverance of the saints. And I hope that as we have gone through these benefits, that we have to seek to, to unpack the fullness of the salvation that is ours in, in Christ, That you have been encouraged, you have been strengthened by just the super abundance of what has been provided for you. Of the the salvation that has been given to you. This morning we want to remember that the salvation that we receive and the benefits of that salvation that are ours are not limited to this life. In fact, the benefits that we experience in this life are actually but a small foretaste of the full glory that is being prepared for us. The full benefit of our salvation is yet future. It is still coming to us. And it is coming to us both at death and at the resurrection. And so this morning we are going to look at those benefits that we receive at death. And then next Sunday we will look at those benefits that we will receive at death. The resurrection. So let us pray and ask God for His blessing upon our study of this morning. Pray with me. Father God, death is not one of those subjects that we are eager to talk about. But Father, we know that because of the work of Christ on our behalf, death has lost its sting. That death has lost its victory, that it has been overcome. And that for those who are in Christ, death is now gain. Death now brings benefits. Father God, would you please open our eyes to see your truth this morning? And would you allow that truth to renew our minds and transform our lives to the praise of your glory? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. Listen to this. This is the very Word of God. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And then turn over to uh, Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians first chapter. I'll be reading Philippians 1, beginning at verse 18. Again, Paul begins with the idea... so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. That is the reading of God's Word. I think I was about 28 years old when I first noticed the evidence of physical decline. You know, before that point, I could pretty much go out and play soccer. I could pretty much go out and run. I could pretty much do whatever I wanted to do without really thinking about it. I didn't have to train. I didn't have to practice. You know, there was a a pickup game at the seminary and I could just go play and I didn't have to worry about feeling like I was about to die three minutes into the game. But when I was about 28 years old, I began to realize that physical exertion now hurt. Uh, It hurt to go run. It hurt to to play soccer. And not only did it hurt, but I was slow. I I couldn't run at the same paces that I used to. And so I was hurting and I was slow. Well, in the past 10 years since I first noticed this decline, I can tell you that the decline has only continued. I'm slower now than I was then. And sadly, it will continue to continue. In fact, experience tells me that it will only accelerate. Now, I know there are a few of you here this morning who don't yet know what I am talking about, but most of you, most of you are all too familiar with this process. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul calls it the process of our outer nature wasting away. We experience physical decline. The truth is that for every one of us, unless the Lord returns first, our bodies will eventually fail us. Each and every one of us are headed for the same final destination. Because of the pollution of sin and because of God's curse upon creation, each and every one of us will one day die. And our bodies will return to dust, as God said in Genesis chapter 3. And for most of us, maybe for all of us, This is an unsettling, even a troubling thought. We do not like the prospect of our impending death. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to to talk about it. As painful as this life can sometimes be, we prefer the pain of the known to the prospect of the unknown. This is why throughout the centuries, man uh, in almost every people group has has come up with thoughts and theories about what happens after death. They've had some conception that makes the thought of, of death more palatable, more bearable. But if we are honest with ourselves... We will recognize that the problem with these conceptions, the the problem with these thoughts about life after death, whatever they happen to be, whatever shape they take, the problem is that they're fantasies. The problem is that they are mere conjecture. They are not based on any reliable source of knowledge. They are simply the expression of our wishes. They are the expression of what man hopes will be true. And such conjecture offers no real comfort. We're not interested in what might be. We're not interested in what we hope will be. We're not interested in in speculation. We want to know the truth. We, We want to know what actually is. But where can we find truth about death? And about what lies beyond it. This is a question that man has, has pondered throughout his existence. But I want to suggest to you that the answer shouldn't be all that difficult to grasp. I want to suggest to you this morning that there is only one possible source of true knowledge. True knowledge about death and what lies Beyond only the immortal, everlasting God of whom we sang this morning. Only such a God, the Alpha and Omega, the God who was and is and is to come. The God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Only such a God, only the living and true God can tell us with any certainty what lies in store for us at death and beyond. And I don't want you to miss that fact this morning as we we turn our attention to the Scriptures to see what it says to us about death. You see, there is a general consensus today that it is irrational, that it is foolish even, to rely on revelation for knowledge. They they sort of look with disdain on those religious types who who look to God's revelation to, to find out what is true. True knowledge, they say, it comes from observation of the world. It comes from experimentation. It comes from the use of our, of our minds to, to reason, to establish facts from the things that we know by experience. To rely on revelation, that is to turn off your brain, to commit intellectual suicide. But I want you to see this morning that that is simply not the case. What could be more reasonable? What could be more reasonable than relying on the revealed word of the all knowing, all wise, eternal, and everlasting God? What could be more reasonable than trusting what he tells us is true? It seems to me that the foolish choice is to trust your own opinion. The foolish choice is to rely on your own understanding, on your own wisdom, to believe your own perceptions more than His Word. That is true foolishness. Now that's not my my main point this morning, but but I can't just kind of go by it without saying it. We have to see that the world lies to us when it calls us fools for believing in God's revelation. You know, we are sometimes we sometimes cower at such, at such accusations. We want to, to prove that, well, no, no, no. Our, our knowledge is based on reason. Our knowledge is, is based on the, the scientific enterprise. Well, there are value in those things. But it is the fool who trusts his own wisdom more than the Word of God. Not the other way around. And so this morning, what we are going to do is we are going to go to the Word of God. And we are going to ask, the eternal God, what He has to teach us about death. We are not going to ask what we hope is the case. We are not going to ask what we think might be the case. We are not going to ask what the best minds among us have, have speculated will be true. But we are going to say, God Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, Alpha and Omega, what have you told us is true. And to go to His revelation is not intellectual suicide, But far from it, it is the only reasonable course there is. That is why the Scriptures say it is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. So what we do here this morning is we, we look to God's Word to find out what it has to tell us about death and about what lies beyond death. This is the only reasonable course before us. So let us see what God has to actually tell us about about death and about the benefits of our salvation at death. I think the New Testament shows that there are at least two benefits. There are at least two benefits that we will experience when we die in Christ. Our our catechism states it this way. Question 37 of the, the shorter catechism gives this answer. It says the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Since I failed to give you an outline this morning, and you don't have that right in front of you, let me read that again. Now this is is question 37 of our Shorter Catechism. It says, The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their graves till the resurrection. So at death, our our bodies return to death. That, That process of decline that has already begun in this life, it is going to be brought to consummation. Our bodies are going to completely fall apart. But they are awaiting the resurrection. We'll we'll talk more about that next week. It's it's not the end of our bodies, but it is the end of these mortal bodies, these decaying bodies, these these bodies that are wasting away. But while our bodies go into the ground, our souls immediately pass into glory. They immediately go to, to be with the Lord. But more than this, not only do our souls pass into glory, but our souls are themselves glorified. They are made perfect in holiness. So the two benefits are this that our souls pass into glory, and our souls are glorified. We see the first of these benefits in the passage that I read this morning. Uh, Look with me again at first Corinth or at 2 Corinthians chapter five. Flip back over there to 2 Corinthians chapter five. Here Paul says quite plainly, he says, while we are at home in the body, that is while we are alive in this world while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Now, this does not mean that, that the Lord is not with us as He promised to be. Remember the promise that Jesus made to His disciples. He said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Jesus is not reneging on that promise. Paul is not saying that, that He has failed to keep that promise. But rather, He says, listen... The way that we will be with God then is not the way that we are with Him now. We are not with the Lord now. He is with us by His Spirit, yes. He is empowering us, yes. But there is coming a day when our being with the Lord, our experience of being with Him will be far more than it is now. In fact, our experience now, he says, is an experience of faith. Our experience then will be an experience of sight. So to to be here now is to be away from the Lord. But notice what Paul says. He goes on to say, But, when we die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that is far better. He says, when I leave behind this mortal body, when I do finally die, when that process of decline comes to fruition, I will be immediately present with the Lord. And that, he says, is far better. He says basically the same thing in the passage I read in Philippians 1. Notice he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So when we die, we we pass immediately into glory. We we go to, to be with our Lord in a far greater sense than we are now. Jesus taught the same thing when he said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. So we see clearly that to be absent from the body, to be to be physically dead is to be present with the Lord. There, the death is not the end of our existence. But more than this, there, there is no sort of holding cell. There is no place of purgatory that we have to go first before we can go to be with the Lord. Our souls go immediately into glory. But not only do our souls pass immediately into glory, the, the second benefit, the, the related benefit, is that our souls are immediately glorified as they pass into glory. This is stated explicitly in a passage like Hebrews twelve twenty three, 23, which, which speaks of the souls of believers made perfect. The souls of believers that now are in heaven waiting for that final day to come. Hebrews speaks of them as their souls made perfect. We see the same expectation in a place like 1 John chapter 3. In 1 John chapter 3, John says, listen, we are now in the present the children of God. And that is a good thing. We have been adopted. But what we will be has not yet been made known. It has not yet been revealed. We have not yet been conformed with with perfect glory to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That is coming, He says, on the day when we see Him face to face. There's a day coming when we will see Him. There's a day coming when we will be present with the Lord. And on that day, we will be conformed to the image of His glory perfectly. And so when we die, the the pollution of sin, the the remnants of the old man that wage war against our soul, those remnants that so torment us now, they will be completely removed. In Sunday school, I was uh, talking about sort of an experience I had yesterday as I as I sort of got angry about something that didn't go my way yesterday, and then I sort of had to, to process the, uh, you know, my, my reaction to this and, and think, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm just sort of seething because I didn't get my way. And, and when you have a reaction like that, you just can't help but, uh, but realize the depth of sin in your own heart. And you're like, here I am, you know, I have no compassion for the fact that this didn't go well because somebody else, wasn 't you know, it didn 't go well for them either, and, and that doesn 't bother me all that bothers me is that i didn 't get what I wanted out of this situation and you realize how deep sin is, and, and you realize how how impossible it is that, uh, that, that you will live in conformity with, with the love of God and the love of neighbor that you are that you are called to that you have seen the glory of the, that, that righteousness that holiness that that glory that you long for, and you say, I fall so far short. And Paul says in Romans 8 that we just groan because we fall so far short. But the day is coming when our groaning will cease. Because the remnants of sin, the pollution of sin, the stain of sin, the power of sin, even the very presence of sin will be removed. That's the glory that is in store for us. It's no wonder then that Paul says, my desire is to depart, for that is far better. Just imagine not having to wrestle with your sinful nature anymore. Just just imagine not having to to deal with the the, the pollution of sin. Not having to deal with its entanglements. Being set free to to fully and perfectly glorify and enjoy your God forever. Forever. That is what is in store for those who are in Christ. Yes, we will still be awaiting the resurrection. We'll, Like I said, we'll talk more about that next week and, and the, the wonder and the joy that that provides. But when we die, we will pass into glory and we ourselves will be glorified. That is the benefit that we receive at the end of this life. And so if these are the two benefits, if these are the the benefits of our salvation at death, the question I want to ask now is, what does this mean for the present? If this is what God has in store for us, if this is what is coming to us, how ought this future reality to shape our life now? And I want to point out at least four implications that I see of these benefits that are coming to us at death. First, because our souls will be made perfect in holiness, because our souls will immediately pass into glory, because this is the future that God has in store for us, we must not live as if this life were all that there is. I think all of us are familiar with the the dangers of short-sightedness in this life. We, we are familiar with the consequences that come from not thinking about the long-term consequences of certain decisions. Think about someone you know who is, who is high school age, a student who just doesn't want to be bothered with, with studying or even going to school. You know, he, would, he would much rather spend his time playing Xbox or, or partying with his friends or, or just hanging out. To the student, these choices seem good in the short term, but there's not an adult out there who cannot see the, the train wreck that lies on the horizon for that student. I mean, sure, any student would, would choose a, a party over, over chemistry homework, but the results are disastrous. We know the, the results that are coming. We know that the long-term consequences of such choices are profound. They will impact that student for the rest of his life. Well, if we can see that with regard to sort of long-term choices in the relatively short term of this life, how much more ought we to think about the eternal consequences of our decisions? We read in Hebrews chapter 11 that by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The fleeting pleasures of sin. Imagine how difficult that decision must have been for Moses. You are a prince of the land. The, the riches of Pharaoh are at your disposal. You are regarded as his son, or, you can go and be identified with the people who are the slaves who make the bricks. That's your choice? Really? And yet, what does the Scripture say? He says, by faith. By faith in what? By, by faith in the everlasting God. By faith in, in the knowledge of, of who this God was and what He had promised to His people. By faith in the promises of God, Moses chose to go and be identified with the people of God because he knew what God had promised to them. And he said, listen, what God has promised to them is far greater than the fleeting pleasures of living as Pharaoh's son for a lifetime. By faith, Moses chose to be identified with the people of God rather than to pursue the fleeting pleasures of sin for a while. It is a model for us. In the same way, we must not leave off following our Savior in order to pursue the treasures of this world. And we could unpack that in any number of ways, but, but you know, just think about what it means for the way that we use our resources. Uh, your time. You know, I heard this week someone said, you know, every one of us has 160 hours, 168 hours a week. It's, it's the only resource where there is perfect equality. And the question is, How are you going to invest those hours? How are you going to to use the hours that are given to you? Well, I believe that in light of what God has in store for us, we must resolve to use those hours in a way that makes sense in light of eternity. What sense does it make to pursue the treasures of this world? Jesus asked just very straightforwardly, he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Not many of you are going to gain the whole world. And so you're just trying to gain some fraction of the world, some, some small fraction of the world's treasures. How much less does that make sense in exchange for your soul? This doesn't mean that we won't work hard at our jobs. We, we know that. But it does mean that, that we will not be driven by the same things that drive those who are, who are chasing after the treasures of this world. We will not be motivated by simply the bigger paycheck or the better benefits or the, the better vacation. But rather, we will seek to glorify God doing something useful with our hands. Doing something beneficial. Something that brings glory to His name and, and good to His people. And it's not just what job we choose that will be affected uh, by our eternal perspective. Other things that we fill our schedule up. What will we choose to, to spend the rest of our time on? I think each and every one of us needs to, to evaluate our schedules and to evaluate our kids' schedules in the light of our promised future. We need to ask ourselves, are we running after the fleeting pleasures or, or treasures of this world? Treasures that ultimately will fade away. Or are we seeking the kingdom of God? I think one of the, the battlefields that, that rages here in Cleveland is, is, is the battle over our kids' schedules in particular. I've heard many people say, people that I have in contact with over at the Y, ask them, well, why do you do the things that you do? Why, why do you fill your schedule, This schedule that you're, you've been complaining about for the last five minutes? Why is that your schedule? And they will say, well, you know, if they don't play on this team and that team and they don't go to these practices and they don't go to these clinics, then then they won't get to play when they get to middle school. They won't get to play when they get to high school. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if if playing at the elementary level is is absolutely necessary or not. In a sense, it doesn't matter. My my question to you is, does it matter that your child won't get to play at the middle school level, that your child won't get to play at the the high school level? level. Now, I I recognize the difficulty of asking that question because I love sports. I I played sports. I want my kids to to play sports. But really, we have to ask ourselves what is important? What are the priorities that ought to govern the choices we make? Now, full disclosure, my my son plays basketball. My my daughter played volleyball. So I'm not suggesting that these things are, are evil in and of themselves, but We have tried to draw the line somewhere. We have tried to say, listen, uh, you can play this much and no more. And I'm fairly certain that those lines that we draw, they probably do hurt their prospects a little bit down the line. But my number one concern is not whether or not my son makes the high school team. And I don't want that to be his number one concern either. I don't want him to think, but that that's the most important thing in the world. I want Him to have this eternal perspective. I want Him to have a, a biblical understanding of what really matters in the light of the future that God has in store for us. And that begins with me modeling it for Him by saying, no, we'll play this much and no more. And kids' sports, of course, is just one example. The challenge is to, to look at all of the choices that we make. Choices that about how we use our time. Choices about how we use our money. Choices about how we use our, our relational energy. You know, you only have a, a certain amount of relational energy to invest in other people. How are you going to use that? We need to examine all of those choices in light of the future that God has promised to His people. In light of what that future tells us about what really matters. We must not live. As if this life were all that there is. That is the first implication. The others hopefully will be quicker. The second implication that I want to highlight is this. That because of what God has promised to us, because of what God has in store for us, we must not fear our impending death. Your death is impending. I don't know if it's impending tomorrow or if it's impending 70 years from now. I, I don't know. But your death is impending. And we must not view our coming death as the worst thing that could possibly happen to us. Jesus once said, Do not fear the one who can merely kill you. Just, just sort of reflect on that for a moment. Don't, don't fear the one who can, who can do no more than just kill you it's one of those, those statements that sort of knocks us back on our heels. What do you mean, don't fear the one who can only kill you? What more is there, we want to ask. But Jesus' point was this. He said, he said do not fear the one who can take your physical life but can't touch your soul. If all they can do is kill your body, then what real harm can they do to you? Peter expresses the same thing in chapter 3 of his first letter. He says, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? He then goes on to say, you may suffer in this life. You may even be killed in this life, but you will still be blessed. So the question we must ask ourselves is, do we fear death? And do we let the fear of death and the fear of, of the suffering that leads to death? Do we let these things control our lives? Do we let them keep us from doing certain things that we would like to do to the glory of God, but, but fear the consequences? Or we, do, we, do they do allow them to keep us doing things that we'd like to set aside, but, but fear setting aside because of what might come? I want to suggest to you that knowing that what God has in store for us ought to set us free from such fear. It doesn't mean that we're going to sort of look forward to the prospect of some grisly death. That's not what I'm talking about. We still may not enjoy the process. We still may want to avoid the process. But death itself will not control us. Because we know it is not the end. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, The slight and momentary afflictions we face in this life until we die are not worth comparing with the surpassing weight of glory that is being prepared for us. The slight and momentary afflictions. Now, remember what Paul's talking about when he talks about the slight and momentary afflictions. He's talking about afflictions that last a lifetime. And, and not just, you know, you know, people being mean to you at the water cooler behind your back type of afflictions. I mean, he, he's talking about being beaten with rods, being, being stoned, being, being whipped, being shipwrecked, being imprisoned. Being abandoned for dead in the wilderness. These are the types of afflictions that, that Paul has in mind when he writes about this flight and momentary afflictions that we are asked to endure in this life. His afflictions, I would say, outstrip most of ours. In the end, he ended up dying as a martyr. And yet he says, Do not fear death or suffering. The worst this world can throw at us is not worth comparing with the glory that God is preparing for us in Christ. And therefore, we must not be controlled by fear. Don't fear the One who can merely kill your body. Don't fear death. Don't let the fear of death control your life. Live to the praise of the glory of your Savior. And remember at all times what He has in store for you. The third implication is this, that we must grieve the death of our loved ones, but we must grieve as those who have hope. I want you to understand that the fear of our own death, or that not fearing our own death, doesn't mean that we will be unaffected when those we love die. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2. Turn with me just quickly to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 27. This is the same letter where Paul has said that for me to die is gain. And yet in verse 27, talking about his friend Epaphroditus, he says, Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So in the same letter where Paul says my death would be gain, he says the death of his friend would bring him sorrow upon sorrow. So not fearing death doesn't mean that we remain unaffected by the death of our loved ones. We, we grieve for the death. It is, it is proper to, to grieve when those we love die. But at the same time, as Paul says in his letter to the Thessalonians, we grieve as those who have hope. We grieve as those who know that death is not the end. As those who know that God has a glorious future in store for those who die in Christ. But of course, this raises an important question. A hard question. What about the death of our loved ones who who don't know Christ? What about the the death of our our loved ones who, who die apart from Him? And that is a hard question. Maybe the hardest question but the reality is that the benefits of salvation are only for the saved. They are only for those who have born again, who have been born again in Christ, being received into glory and, and being glorified is, is only for those who have faith in the Savior. What is in store for those who die apart from Christ is unspeakably different. Those who do not rest in Christ for salvation will one day have to pay the just penalty for their sins. Those who do not rest upon what Christ has done for them will one day have to drink to the dregs the cup of God's eternal wrath. And it is right for us to feel anguished for our loved ones who remain apart from Christ. Just as Paul says in Romans chapter 9, And it is right for us to to grieve for them even bitterly when they die apart from Christ. But at the same time, we must recognize that God is glorified. God is glorified even in ways we cannot comprehend, in ways that that we cannot fathom, in ways that, that we cannot get our mind around. When those who obstinately refuse to acknowledge Him as God are forced to live without Him as God, are forced to live apart from His gracious presence from all eternity. It is a hard truth, and and I do not minimize it at all. Uh, If you are not grieved by it, if you are not burdened by it, then there's a problem. But it brings us to our fourth implication, and that is this, because these benefits are only for believers, because they are only for Christians, We ought to be zealous to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all of our loved ones and to to all of our neighbors. We ought to proclaim this gospel as their only hope. Now, in my experience, this is this has not been a strength of many of the churches that I have been a part of. There are some here at Trinity who are, who are zealous for evangelism and who are very intentional about seeking out opportunities. And I, and I praise God when I hear their stories. They, they are an example and a motivation to me. And there may be even a lot that I don't know about that is going on. And, and I would love to hear your stories. I would love to, to hear about the ways that you have had opportunities to, to share the Gospel with your, with your friends and with your neighbors and with your, with your family. But I also want to challenge us to say, listen, in light of what we believe, we ought to be far more zealous than we are to share the gospel with our neighbors. I don't yet know exactly what that will look like, but, but I want us to be challenged to, to, to grow in this area. We, we have been growing. We've been thinking about it. We've been, we've been doing a better job, I think. But we can continue to grow. We can continue to do better. We can, we can resolve to, to continue to seek out opportunities beyond just friendship evangelism. You see, the problem with friendship evangelism is that you know, your circle of friends doesn't change all that much. And, and by this time, you've probably invited all the people you know to church. And you, you've probably had opportunity to, to talk to them about Christ. But we must go beyond just the friendship evangelism to an intentional proclamation of the gospel to the people who live in this community. We must seek to make known to them the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news that is their only hope. I'll be the first to admit that I don't do that well. But I want to do it better, especially in light of what it is that we believe about the the future that God has in store for those who die in Christ. We know a gospel That sets us free from from the tyranny of this world's pleasures. We know a gospel that sets us free from the fear of death. We know a gospel that promises us that to die is gain. That to go and be with the Lord is far better. We ought to be eager to share that gospel with as many as who will listen. With as many as who will give us ears to here and so these are the implications that i want us to think about as we as we reflect upon what difference does this make here and now that when we die we will pass into glory and we will be glorified because of what christ has done for us upon the cross that is what we believe let it shape our lives because a life shaped by these truths is really the only life worth living because God has given us eyes to see these truths and because He has given us voices to share them with others, that is one reason we call this good news. Now, do you believe that? Amen. Pray with me. Father God, these are profound truths that we are wrestling with here this morning. Profound truths about death and about what lies in store for Your people. Father God, I pray that You would help us to live lives that reflect the truth of what we have heard here this morning. That you would allow these truths to bear fruit in our lives. to The praise of your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.